This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, George Mason University economics professor Brian Kaplan talks about his book, The Case Against Education. He's interviewed by Scott Carlson, senior writer at the Chronicle of Higher Education. This discussion is from February 2018. Brian Kaplan, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So you've written this book about why education is a waste of time and money. Before we get into the substance of the book, what made you want to write a book like this? How did this come about as a project? Well, I mean, I'm basically a whistleblower, so I mean, I've been in the education system for over 40 years at this point. I feel like I've seen an enormous amount of waste of you know, students being bored, their time being wasted, and also a lot of taxpayer money being wasted. And I figured if I don't go and write a book like this, who will? Did you have a, an experience in education that, that made you think about this? I mean, either, either mm-hmm. as a teacher or a student? I would really, I mean, it just began actually all the way back in kindergarten when I was just sitting in class and they're teaching us all these subjects and some of them I understood why I needed to learn them. But there are a lot of others like, why do we have to learn this stuff? And adults would say, well, you need to learn this stuff in order to get a good job. I'm like, well, that seems true because all of you adults had to go through these hoops in order to get where you are. I guess I better conform. And yet I was always puzzled until I started reading more about why education pays, and then he's ah, now I understand the answer to this mystery that I've been wondering about since kindergarten. Mm-hmm. So, you, so a big part of your book focuses on signaling versus mm-hmm. human capital theory. Yes. So I, I think most of the, the audience might not know what that is. So before we get into the substance mm-hmm. of that, what is signaling in, in education, and what is human capital, and how do they, how do they interact? Sure. So a human capital story of education is basically the normal one that teachers and parents tell you, which is you go to school and they pour skills into you. And as a result of that, when you graduate, you are a skillful person and employers then want to go and give you a good job and, get, and pay you a good salary. Uh, so you know, this is a story where you're like, you are transformed by the education, turned from an unskilled student into a skilled worker. Uh, the signaling story says it's different from that. It says, look, really what's going on is that you were jumping through a bunch of hoops which don't really improve you as a worker, but they're impressive. They convince employers that you're good, and thereby they certify you. They put stickers on your forehead saying, this is a prime grade A worker here. Uh, An analogy that I like is if you think about diamonds, there's two ways to raise the value of a diamond. One of them is you get an expert gem cutter to cut it just so to make it perfect. The other one is you get the guy with that eyepiece who looks at it and says, ah, this is a perfect diamond. These are two different ways which can both make a diamond more valuable. The first one is like human capital, where you actually are transforming the diamond and making it better. The second one, where you're looking at it and identifying it and putting your seal of approval on it, that's like signaling. And I suppose signaling also applies to uh, gradations of the education, too. I mean, you get a a degree from Harvard versus a degree Mm -hmm. from some second-tier state college. That might be something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's so many things that go into the signal. So there's the grades, of course. There's the coursework. There's the major. There's which school you went to. Uh, you know, and then, of course, there's many things that you do to signal to employers besides just getting your education. So just dressing properly at the interview and not getting tattoos on your face are a pretty good start. Hmm. So, so what part of signaling do you think is, uh, I mean, how much of an education's value is, is embedded in the signaling? Mm-hmm. Right, well, this is one of the main questions that I am trying to address in the book. My final answer is really something like 80% of, <clears throat> of the payoff comes from signaling. This, I'm not married to this number. I consider a bunch of other different versions or different different ways of looking at it. But anyway, the way that I come to the number, there's a lot of different kinds of evidence that I consider, and I say they all point to a number in this ballpark. I mean, one is just looking at the curriculum and just seeing what fraction of students' times they spend on subjects that you could plausibly ever use in a job. It's like literacy and numeracy, very likely to use those on the job. But then you say, all right, well, 
Foreign languages in the U.S., how often do people even learn those to a level where they could use them on a job, and how many jobs even require them? Or even things like, like history, how many jobs use knowledge of history? Like art and music. Again, like, like, so you'll say, well, that's just for entertainment, but these are requirements often. And if you were to say, I refuse to go and dance, something my kids were often tempted to say, it's like, well, the system does not allow it. You are not allowed to advance unless you've completed all these requirements. So, I mean, like in the book I say, and it really is true, that if I had just drawn a line in high school and said I refuse to do Spanish because I don't see the value of it for me, uh, if I had said that, I really could not have gone to college. Uh, the college that I went to, UC Berkeley, I just would not have fulfilled the requirements, and I could not be here today if I had said I'm not going to go and do these subjects that don't seem very valuable to me. But, but 80% is signaling. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's, you're putting that at a much higher mm-hmm. number than some other economists mm-hmm. who study college sure. and the labor market, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably more around 30 to 50 mm-hmm. is where they is where I, that I'd say even is. that's high. I mean, I'd say, like, out of people who really specialize in this, I know a lot will just say zero or basically a rounding error. Uh, I was just debating another uh, economist, uh, Eric Kanyashek, last week. He said 20, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, your number is actually pretty high for specialists in the field. Hmm. Okay. So, but wh- why do you have it that high? I mean, what, mm-hmm. uh, without going into right. complex math, I mean, right. why, well, why so is big part, so, so here's the thing. is the, you know, Economists who do, who do this work generally have zero interest in the curriculum. They don't pay any attention to what people actually study. So much of what they want to do is only look at the income part. And I say, you can't really understand what signaling in human capital is so you open up the black box and see what's actually in the curriculum, what subjects are people studying, what subjects they people use. I mean, I've generally found that when I talk to economists who are giving you these lower numbers, um, you know, and say, well, look, look at the curriculum. So little of it seems to actually be relevant to the jobs that people are likely to have. Their usual reaction is to say, oh, well, people are learning how to learn or critical thinking, which is interesting because these are the same economists who don't bother reading psychology either. In the book, I read a lot of psychology, and I checked with psychologists as much as possible to make sure that I was fairly summarizing it. And here's the striking thing. Psychologists who really work on the subject of learning how to learn or learning how to think are very pessimistic, and they come away often shell-shocked at what the evidence is. They say, look, it looks like, really, if we do a good job, then students learn what they were taught. But learning how to think, that is, it's, that is such a moonshot to be able to actually do that, that like, in the data, it's just very hard to see it really happening. So, so you're putting that level at 80%, and you're mm-hmm. doing that because you've looked at the other aspects, the mm-hmm. learning process mm-hmm. that's supposed to be happening, mm-hmm. and you're saying, look, you know, there, there are studies of education that indicate that that learning is not happening, mm-hmm. and so you're sort of mm-hmm. estimating that at a higher level. Right. I mean, so, you know, so there's that too. So I mean, another thing that I look at is there are many subjects that we spend years on in school where if you go and test adults on them, they appear to know next to nothing about them. So history is a classic case. How many years did you have to study history just in K through 12? And yet, if you go and talk to adults and just give them tests of very basic questions, like what century was the American Revolution? You know, like, you know, someone gets something, maybe half of them, people can answer maybe half of the very easy questions correctly. Uh, but, you know, some other things that I did in trying to come up with this 80% number. Uh, so I also went and looked at work by, you know, by sociologists where they go and see how much, uh, you know, how, much, how much has the American labor market changed in terms of the jobs people do, and how much, is it, how, much, how much has it changed just in terms of the education that you need to do one and the same job? Mm. And you know, they got numbers going back to at least 1940. And the amazing result is that most of the changes in the American economy are not that we've switched to more intellectually demanding jobs. There's some of that. But the big change is that now you need about three more years of education to do the same jobs that existed many decades ago. You know, so you need three more years of education to be you know, a waiter or a cashier or a bartender or a hotel concierge. And again, for some of these, you might say, well, maybe the job is more complicated than it used to be. 
Others, it probably seems like it's less complicated, like being a waiter, you don't need to do arithmetic at the, in order to add up a bill anymore. And overall, the people who do this work generally don't think that there's been much of an overall change in the amount of training that you need to do one and the same job. So, and again, like really the signaling story says, well, this makes a lot of sense because as education levels have risen, the amount of education you need to impress employers, to convince them you're worthy of a job, has go, goes, goes up re- almost in lockstep. Well, and I want to get into the whole idea of, of graduates working as waiters mm-hmm. in, a, in a bit. But, you know, the, the common story that you hear around this is people saying, look, we need more of this education because mm-hmm. we're heading into more of a service economy that requires more interpersonal interactions. Mm-hmm. It makes it for a more complex uh, labor market. And that's why you get mm-hmm. this sort of extra training on top of it. Yeah, so I mean, people actually look at what people do on the job, don't generally find anything like that. Hmm. So, again, you know, like, you know, it's easy to go and find an example of a job where it's, more, where it's important to deal with people. There's also a bunch of jobs where it's less important to deal with people than ever. You just think about all the people who now can just work behind a computer and barely ever talk to anyone. Um, the other thing, of course, is that one of the main things that we're not explicitly teaching in schools is interpersonal skills. And you can say, well, it's still, you still get something there, and I agree with that. But the key question is compared to what? So I say school is great training in dealing with other people if your alternative is staying home alone in your basement playing video games. Mm-hmm. But what if the relevant alternative is the relevant alternative of most human beings around the world and throughout history, which is having a job? You, know, you pick up a lot of interpersonal skills on the job. And you know, as, you know, as I talk about in the book, there's a lot of similarities between school and work, which is why you can look at school and say it's preparing people for work. But there's also a lot of important differences and so, like, like in school, especially nowadays, there's very much an ethos of every, every child is a beautiful and unique snowflake, and everyone is important, and, not, and really being very sparing and negative feedback. On the job, on the other hand, you get a lot more negative feedback, and people will bluntly tell you, look, you're not measuring up, here's what you need to do. A lot less effort to go and appeal to people's feelings. So I'd say, you know, like in terms of preparing people for adult life, I think work is actually better preparation for work than school is, because you are learning some dysfunctional things as well as some functional things. So, so if you're saying that uh, 80% of the value of an education, educational degree mm-hmm. is this signaling part mm-hmm. and the learning is sort of minimal, what's sort of implied in that is that you're coming to the college, you're coming to high school with this innate knowledge that you already have uh, or an innate work, work ethic. Isn't that kind of the implication there? Um, not really. So... You know, you know, the main thing I say is that most people show up on the job, you know, they know how to read and write and a few other things, but you show up on the job phenomenally ignorant of anything you would ever be doing in the real world, and then you finally learn. I mean, the way that we use school in modern society is really to make people jump through hoops for over a decade, and then finally you get a job which usually has almost nothing to do with, any, with your major or anything else, and then they say, okay, now, given that you were able to learn all these other things, we're going to go and teach you something that's actually going to be useful and something where there's, a, there's actually demand for it. I don't think you need to think that people, uh, you know, you certainly, like, like in terms of innate knowledge, I mean, I would be more inclined to say people don't learn very much, and especially they don't retain very much, which is an important distinction. So in the book, I spent a lot of time looking at studies of what adults know, right? And the motivation for this is if that human capital story is right, that employers are paying you for your skills, that it would make sense that they would pay you for the skills you have now. Why would employers go and pay you for stuff you knew 10 years ago? That doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so, you know, so, so, when, so once, once you, you, know, you, know, you accept this idea that, that uh, the retention is really the relevant thing to measure, then it you know, may very well be that people had a lot of knowledge on the, day of the, on the time of the final exam, 
And yet, it's still, you know, that knowledge really doesn't explain what happens later because people forget things so quickly when they don't learn them, which, you know, like is, I mean, think about all the classes you've ever had in your life where you just don't remember much of anything from, from what you learned in that class. So, so you're saying that the, the learning might happen, but we don't retain it and it's not yes. relevant. Yeah, yes. yeah ex- exactly. So, I mean, there's, there's all three problems. Of course, if you are a teacher, you know a lot of times the learning doesn't happen, mm-hmm. right? But yeah, then, then there is the problem that even if, you know, even if they uh, did learn it, generally not relevant to the jobs they're going to be doing in the future. And then there's the final problem of by the time that it would be relevant, you've often forgotten it. There's another problem I talk about, which is people are just very bad at applying what they know, mm-hmm. uh, which again, you know, this is the kind of thing that psychologists study in a, in, a, in a lot of depth, where you, know, you teach them some abstract knowledge, which would be useful for a practical problem, and then see, are they going to go and actually go and use what we taught them to solve the problem? And instead, people have a lot of trouble just connecting the two things. So, you know, like, Give them a little, a little, a small architecture problem where you can use the Pythagorean theorem. Teach them Pythagorean theorem first. How many people will actually say, "Oh, it's a right triangle"? More commonly, people just take out the ruler and measure it and forget all about the Pythagorean theorem. Hmm. I mean, I think some people would hear what you're saying. I'm not trying to sort of harp yeah. on this this signaling issue, but I think people would hear what you're saying and they would say, "Well, what you're saying is that you're you're." By saying that most of the value of the education is signaling, signaling, you know, intelligence, signaling uh, work ethic, mm-hmm. signaling conformity, mm-hmm. which is another big, big right. part oh, yeah. of it, and we want to talk about that a little bit. Um, I think most people would say, well, then, then and, and that the learning is sort of minimal, mm-hmm. the relevant learning is sort of minimal, then what you're saying is that people are sort of coming to college with sort of the, the tools already or the ability mm-hmm. already, and then mm-hmm. they just go through this sort of... Mm-hmm four-year rabbit maze, and, mm-hmm. then they, and then they get out and they have their stamp, and then mm-hmm. they go to the employer and say, hey, reward me for what mm-hmm. I really already have. Right. I mean, so a few things. So, I mean, 20% of over a decade in school is not minimal. Mm-hmm. You know, it does, it does add up to something. And I mean, what, probably the most common misunderstanding of what I'm saying is, that, you know, Brian, so you say education is all signaling. saying, you know, 80% is not all. 20% of a big thing is still, is still a pretty big thing. Um, and the other thing is, of course, during school, there is natural maturation. Mm-hmm. So this doesn't mean that you could have done your current job when you were 15. You were, you, you were a very different kind of person when you were 15. So there is, of course, just time is passing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like, like, like I am saying that, uh, the, you know, the job, that you, the, the job that you get after graduation, you could have been trained to have done that reasonably well at a much earlier age, except most employers would have not been willing to train you. Most employers wouldn't have been willing to interview you. Uh, because you need to do the signaling in order to convince them that you are worthy of having your application not be thrown away even before you get to the interview stage. So, so before we get into the, you know, the whole issue of, of some of these non-relevant majors mm-hmm. that you talk about, um, and that's your, your term, yeah, non-relevant yes, majors. Well, low, low relevance. Low relevancy. Low, low. Um, I, I just want to talk a little bit about, about so that signal and, and the entering of the marketplace. I mean, it's the, it's the employers themselves that are asking for mm-hmm. this signal. So what's so even if it is mostly a signal, not all a signal, but mostly a signal, what's the problem then? Yeah, so the problem is that if everyone had one degree less, we could send a signal just about as effectively. So there is what you think of as a zero-sum element of signaling. Um, you know, so you know, there's a classic analogy. You know, like there's a bunch of people at a concert. You're all sitting down. You personally want to see better. What can you do? And the answer is, of course, stand up. So therefore, it follows, as night does day, that if we all stood up, we could all see better, right? Wrong, right? We'd be blocking each other. And, you know, and in the signaling story, this is a lot of what education is about. If one person gets more, you look better, and employers are going to be more interested in hiring you and giving you a good job. If everybody does it, th- everybody does it though, 
the result is just that we block each other. And instead, we get this credential inflation we're talking about, where you need more and more education to get a job, where intrinsically you'd say, well, why do I need college in order to be a waiter at Morton's? doesn't make sense. But if there's a whole lot of people with degrees that are qualified as waiters as well, it makes sense for Morton's to say, well, there's plenty of, like, why not just go and call the people that don't have it and only interview the people that have, have these extra credentials. Uh, in terms of, you know, why, why do employers do it again? Like, if education levels were a lot lower, then employers could not afford to be so snobby, which is a big point that I, that I make. You know, in the past, you know, like, you know, like, in 1940, if a restaurant says we only hire waiters with college degrees, then you're just going to have a restaurant without any waiters in it. Or you'll be paying a massive amount to get someone that could be, would be doing a, a regular college-type job to be your waiter. But nowadays, it's totally feasible for a restaurant to be that, to be that picky because there's so many applicants they'll have who will have those credentials. Mm-hmm. Well, but in this case, you know, I, I've done, spent the past year looking at the path from college to work mm-hmm. and talking to a lot of companies about what they want out of, out of students. Mm-hmm. And you'll talk to, say, a, a prominent rental car company, the, the head of HR mm-hmm. for that rental car company, and that person will say, no, we absolutely need people with bachelor's degrees. So, <laughs> to rent cars. Well, or to sell cars or yeah, to move yes. up in management. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, the question I have here is, you know, what's, what's driving the signaling? Clearly, the businesses are asking for mm-hmm. this at some level. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, sort of what's driving this up? Is mm-hmm. it us sort of taking out the boxes and wanting to stand on them at the, at the theater? Or is it, the, is it mm-hmm. the businesses saying, no, look, what you have is inadequate. Mm-hmm. We need something to sort of filter the applicants. Mm-hmm. We want something that can show your ability right. before we even consider you. Yeah, so there's a lot of things going on, but most obviously there is about a trillion dollars of government funding at all levels on the side of the status quo. Uh, so I mean, very much worth keeping that in mind. Uh, this means that we have a very accessible education system, which people normally think of as purely a good. And in the book I say, well, there's a dark side to accessibility, which is that if accessible to everyone, then it may just mean that everybody needs to spend a lot of years in school in order to end up at the same place they would have ended up with a lower level of accessibility. And again, like when people think this way, they're always thinking of the talented kid from a really poor family who gets a leg up. They're not thinking about all of the other kids from the same neighborhood who just don't like school and have many of their opportunities, which have been taken away from them because now employers say, look, there's, just too, there's so many people of college degrees. Why should we give a chance to someone else who hasn't gone and jumped through the same hoops as they are? Uh, in term, you know, so yeah, that's part of it. I mean, another thing is there is just a general social shift towards uh, having a high stigma upon, uh, you know, high stigma against not, be, not being well-educated. So we've got parents, teachers, peers, all working together. And again, in the real world, of course, there's an interaction between the funding and the attitudes. Uh, again, of course, the funding is the easiest thing to actually do something about. It's the simplest thing to do something about. So I do talk about in the, you know, talk about that in the book. You know, there, you know, then you know, people will also say, well, it's a richer society, so people are not so interested in having their kids go, you know, start working at an early, early age. Uh, you know, so, I mean, I, I think there's something to that. Although at the same time, I think there's probably a lot of parents who would really appreciate if their kids could become independent adults before the age of 30. Well, you, I mean, you know what I've heard talking to college administrators is mm-hmm. there's a lot of kids who aren't working during high school, in part mm-hmm. because people mm-hmm. seem to not want to hire high schoolers anymore, mm-hmm. but also because the, the students are working so hard oh, on, yeah. on their resume for college mm-hmm. and on their grades that they're not going out and getting yes. jobs at pizza places and yogurt shops mm-hmm. like they did when, when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And you know, so one of the side topics I do in the book is I actually look at the evidence on vocational education and its value. And most of the people who study it, I'd say almost all the people who study it, come away saying that students are making a mistake just from their own point of view because you do seem to pick up some useful job skills even you know, you know, like do, you know, from doing a job. Uh, you know, so there's quite a bit of work just saying that people who had a bit more vocational education make more money after graduation, have higher employment rates, 
And again, of course, there's always the concern maybe that would have happened anyway, but you know, researchers are trying to deal with that. And then you know, one of the main things I say is, aside from the selfish advantages, which, by the way, are amplified for all the kids who just hate regular school, mm-hmm. right? You know, so, and again, like as a professor, it's very easy for me to forget that people like this exist, but there's tons of them. There's tons of people who just detest the entire academic experience. And it's not because they don't have the right teachers, because abstract stuff is boring to them. They like doing things, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, like vocational education is really good for people with that personality because it gives them alternative that they don't hate, right? And, but then, you know, on top of it, to say just from the taxpayer's point of view, uh, the, uh, it's, you know, it makes a lot more sense to go and encourage people to learn useful skills than to jump through extra hoops. Because you know, learning useful skills, at least in rich society, means more people have things they're able to do and accomplish. Whereas just getting everyone to put more stickers on their forehead, you know, again, it's an inherently futile arms race. So, you know, then. So, so there, I mean, as far as vocational education goes, I mean, there, I think there was a study out of Fordham mm-hmm. uh, recently that said that students who took CTE courses mm-hmm. in high school, vocational mm-hmm. courses in high school, uh, were much more likely to uh, graduate from high school, mm-hmm. graduate with higher grades, and much more likely to matric- matriculate in college. So it, it sort of bumps up the mm-hmm. revel- relevancy mm-hmm. of what they're learning in many ways. At the same time, there was, you know, going back 40, 50 years, there was mm-hmm. a dark side to vocational mm-hmm. education in the sense that it was, it was a tracking system. Mm-hmm. And, and kids from uh, poor backgrounds, mm-hmm. non-white backgrounds, were much more likely to be tracked into the vocational system than into the college prep system. So uh, is that, uh, if, you're, if you're advocating mm-hmm. for uh, mm-hmm. more opportunities or, or, or mm-hmm. more effort to uh, push kids into sort of practical learning, vocational mm-hmm. learning, mm-hmm. is that a dark side, a, a danger to, to this? Yeah. There's, always, there's always a danger. Again, of course, you know, it, you know, you want, you will, you know, it makes sense to base it first upon like, what the kid actually likes and what, and, and what the kid is actually good at. Um, you know, you know, it makes perfect sense to try to actually come up with some fair-minded way of doing that. So, you know, like I'm a big fan of objective testing for doing something like that rather than just having a teacher go and say, you, you, and you, I declare that you, uh, you, know, that, that you need to go and do vocational education instead. But testing yeah, could be problematic, yeah. too. Yes. Um, well, so, you know, like... You know, Late bloomers yes, yes, yes. and all yes. of that, you know. Certainly can be. Yeah. Um, you know, it's also something that's under so much scrutiny, and there's so much high-quality work on trying to, actually, you know, trying to validate tests to see, does this test actually predict what it is that we think that it should predict? So, you know, I mean, I would say that, you know, again, like, so... If you go and talk to people who actually do this for a living psychology, so you know, I mean, to me, it's uh, very impressive how far they've come and and how well they do. And you know, I think most of the criticisms come down to your test isn't perfect. It's like, oh, but having someone may, you know, use their own discretion is perfect. So you know, like, I think it's always important to go do, do a race between what's what's the the, the available options. And the other, thing, also worth pointing out that people don't like to think about the dark side of the system that we have, but the current system has an enormous dark side, which is there is a there's a genuine college for all mentality. This is not this is not a myth. This is actually inculcated in students across the entire K through 12 system. This is the only thing that's worth doing. And as a result, you have a lot of kids who did very poorly in high school who still go to college and then very predictably fail. Right? And this is important because as I say in the book, so much of the payoff from college comes from graduation. And this means so sending someone to college who only has a 5% chance of graduating really does them a disservice. It's basically saying, why don't you go and put your money in, into lottery tickets? Mm-hmm. And you say, well, it's, there's a dark side of not buying lottery tickets. Once in a while, somebody wins. All right, but the main thing is the dark side of buying lottery tickets, which is the odds of success are phenomenally low. Do, do you think there's also a problem associated with, with the businesses in the sense that they're using uh, college degrees to sort of filter their applicants by, by class or by race? 
Is that possible? More right. more class than race? Yeah. So, I mean, again, my you know, my my, gen, my general view is that employers want to make money, and if you were and if you were using a method that was inferior to some other one, um, you know, just in order to get people of a, des- of a desired class or race, then I think that's that, that's pretty that's pretty unlikely, especially today. Uh, now, it could very well be that they don't have anything better, and they can you know they and you know they haven't been able to figure any, anything anything else out, and then as a result, you wind up getting these effects. But you know, I, mean, I don't think that they are deliberately doing it in order just to go and have a social club. You know, like, you know people in business, they are there to make money. And again, like, of course, if you could go and make you know, and you know, make a lot more money by going and replacing college workers with non-college workers. I mean, again, this is not a really hard business strategy to to try. If you were to say, let's just run our business, be super open-minded, or maybe let's just offer lower wages than everybody else, but only hire people who didn't go to college and see who well, like, who are the best applicants we can get that way. And it seems like such an obvious business model. I think it'd be very surprising if it would be successful, but it hasn't been done. Uh, let me talk to you a little bit about these sort of irrelevant courses that we were talking about before, mm-hmm. history, drama, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people might say, well, and you say in your book, mm-hmm. you know, there are tens of thousands of people who, uh, I might get these numbers mm-hmm. wrong, but tens of thousands of people who study history. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only a few thousand uh, positions mm-hmm. teaching history every year. Mm-hmm. But you can... First of all, you can study history, and uh, it could still be relevant to your job, even if you're not a historian. I mean, my, my uncle is, a, is a, the dean of business at a college, and he, he used to teach military history as part of the business course, you know, study what generals did in order to run their armies and what was successful and what wasn't. Um, and, and furthermore, you know, people, when they enter college, uh, they need the signal. Let's assume that the, signal, the signaling factor that you have is right. They need the signals, so they want to study that, something that's at least interesting to them. Mm-hmm. Um, what's wrong with studying history? Uh, right. So, you know, I'd, I'd say not so much that there's something wrong with studying history as there's something wrong with subsidizing the study of things that are that people are not are very unlikely to use in the future. And but we, all, we don't yes, know yes, that, yes. that it's unlikely. I well, mean, they may use yes. it. Well, we don't know with certainty. But again, I mean, I think I think like you know, some, I know I know quite a few historians. If you were to go to them and, and as ask them, so how likely is it that you think your students are going to go and use these in the non-historical jobs they're going to be doing? You know, normal reaction is, yeah, well, of course, it's highly unlikely. You know, you know, so in high school history, sometimes the teacher would say, ah, this is going you're going to see how relevant this is later on. You know, I love history, but you know, like in terms of the relevance, I think it's very hard to actually see it coming up, especially since you know a decent amount of history. It's very easy to come up with an historical analogy for almost any possible for almost any possible action, right? So, I mean, you think about someone who wants to argue in favor of a war, like, well, which historical act, which historical episode do you then bring up? Munich. If you want to go and argue against a war, what do you bring up the Vietnam? Bring up Vietnam. So, in terms of like how much extra knowledge this is or, or 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 guidance this is giving them, it does seem like like it's like it's pretty low. But yeah, in terms of you know, like if there was someone saying like I'm a college student, what should I, what should I study? Uh, yeah, I, I would be pretty inclined to tell them, well, you've got to find something that's interesting to you. You don't want to have four miserable years of life. And good news is, even though it won't be relevant, you are still signaling to employers, so they're still going to, they're still going to treat you a lot better than if you didn't go to college at all. At the same time, the main question that I'm asking in the book is, does it make sense for taxpayers to subsidize this kind of thing? Does it make, ta- does it make sense for taxpayers to, uh, you know, to encourage this rat race where people spend many years of their life in order to end up at a job that they could have done just as well uh, you know, earlier on, or they could have learned through an apprenticeship, right? And again, so if you say that people really enjoy the history, that's something where, you know, if that were true, and for the few people it is, then, all right, that seems to be, 
at least a worthwhile argument as to whether you want to go to taxpayers and say, look, someone has a hobby of history. Will you pay for them for four years for a lot of money so they can pursue their hobby? I think that would be a pretty hard case to make to taxpayers. But I, I right, right, right. But, you know, but, but at the same time, um, you know, was, let's see, but, uh, but at the... Uh, you know, you know, but at the same time, you know, so like the truth is that um, you know, most people who go and study these subjects, though it may be their least dislike thing, mm-hmm. still there is no, there's not seen to be very much enthusiasm except among a small minority. And you know, like how can I say that? Well, I have you know, a few pieces of evidence I talked about in the book. One is just very low classroom attendance in college. So unless you're taking admission, you know, average, average attendance in college is about 60%. So you know, like 40% of students not showing up. Uh, furthermore, very few people ever unofficially take a class. Right? Even though certainly if you're on campus, it would be easy, but very few people seem to have any interest in, in taking, a, uh, taking a spare class just for the fun of it. In fact, as I pointed out in the book, if you're not a student there at all, in general, it is no problem just to go to, to, go to a college and start attending classes. Unlikely the professor even, re- even realizes that you're not officially enrolled. If you were officially enrolled, the, or, or rather if you were to go and tell the professor, I'm not really a student here, is it okay to be here? Most professors are touched because this is like a once-in-career opportunity for them that some outside person is genuinely curious. Or again, you can just take a look at the Internet and just see how much enlightenment-based use of the Internet is there versus you know, cat memes or watching the Kardashians. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are a lot of great educational videos on, you know, up on YouTube, but their viewership is so low compared to other things. So, you know, like, I mean, it's just to me that while there is a little bit of enjoyment of these academic subjects... It is greatly overstated by people who want to make the case for preserving the status quo. I think I think professors and public policy people would say, you know, it's it's there's something to, you know, having people take history so that they're at least introduced to it. I mean, isn't this mm-hmm. part of the sort of the educational mm-hmm. mission? Let's introduce mm-hmm. people to a, a range of topics. Mm-hmm. Something might hook them. Mm-hmm. Something something might mature in them over time, like fine wine, and they might. You know, they might enter their 30s and their 40s, and then suddenly they're reading Steven Pinker and John mm-hmm. Keegan and, and, and folks like that. Yeah, and it, it happens once in a long while, right? <laughs> but, you know, so I say, you know, like a, a big part of my book is saying, look, there's two ways to go and make public policy. One is by wishful thinking and romantic slogans, and the other one is by looking at the numbers. I like the slogans. I like the romanticism. You know, like I said, you know, so, like, if you were to say, like, you know, history is a great subject, it teaches us about what it is to be a human being, like, I say, yeah, that's all true. But then say, but does the actual teaching of history as we know it accomplish this? And this is where I say you have to look at what actual adults know about history and say it doesn't seem to work. It doesn't take, on average, of course there are rare exceptions, but then how much effort do we want to put in for rare exceptions, especially realizing that many people that are curious about history would have done it on their own, even if they hadn't had the class. Or I also know plenty of people who study subjects despite the class in it because the class gave them such bad memories. It was so poorly taught, or just being around other students butchering Shakespeare was so painful. And so, you know, I've had people with PTSD about high school Romeo and Juliet readings aloud, and like I just can't bear the thought of it. Or it took me years before I could go and read Shakespeare because finally the memories of the other students mispronouncing the words went away. I, I mean, you're getting into something. Uh, drama too was another thing mm-hmm. that I was thinking about. I mean, you, you know, you have people studying drama. There's very few of them that will become the next Tom Cruise or the next mm-hmm. Bette Midler or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the skills you learn through drama are improvisation in the moment, mm-hmm. presenting yourself well, learning to react to other people's uh, emotions and other people's sort of cues, mm-hmm. uh, learning to stand in front of a crowd. I mean, all of these things can be, could be useful to business at some point if, if applied well. And wouldn't mm-hmm. it take the instructor to say, look, you're learning this. 
you're not going to be the next Tom Cruise, maybe, mm-hmm. but you know there are other ways that you could use this in life. Uh, again, totally possible, but does it really happen? Right. So I mean, just think about people uh, people that you know who are good at the things that you mentioned. I mean, like, would you be like, if you went and, went and talked to them and you found out that they were no more likely to have studied drama in high school than anybody else? Would that shock you? It wouldn't shock me. And again, like, like you know, so as I said, you know, like, there's there's a lot of psychologists who work on this. I mean, the main result is that even though some skills seem like they ought to generalize, it seems like if you do drama, this ought to make you better at giving a presentation at a business meeting. Mm-hmm. But you know, I don't know of any study on that exact point. But you know, a general depressing finding they get is even when you think two things should be tied together, they generally are not. And you know, so like if you're lucky, you send someone to drama class and they become better at doing a theatrical performance on stage under the exact conditions under which they're trained. Mm-hmm. Of course, a lot of times even that doesn't happen. But again, the idea that if you that because we can imagine a use of you know, a, a non-acting use of drama, the idea that then that in fact it, w- it will cause a noticeable improvement in, P- in these skills, that again like mostly seems to be wishful thinking, and not just to me. So you know, like like this is an area, you know, this is a kind of book where if I did all of the research myself, I would have taken hundreds of years to write the book. Sure. So instead, what I did was for each t- each time I came to a relevant topic, I say let's go and find all the people in any discipline that do work on this. And find out what do they say about it. And again, I, I mean, I honestly went, you know, really try just to read everything that I can, and also to talk to people in the field, like when I have questions. So, like, you know, email them. You know, people are, are generally very good about writing back. And you know, like the striking thing about this, so the, this research comes out of the subfield of educational psychology. People in this field really want what you're saying to be true. They're desperate, right? You know, they and when they first become the graduate students, and they say, hmm, everybody else who studied this seems to be very pessimistic must be that they've missed something. And then they work in the field for 20 or 30 years trying to find out what everyone else has missed. And then at the end, they're shell-shocked and say, wow, it just seems really hard to teach general skills. And the way that learning normally works has got to be very specific, very hands-on. And the way that people get good at, good at anything is by getting an enormous amount of practice, a diverse range of practice in the specific thing they're doing. Hmm. Uh, you talk to uh, employers these days, too, just turning back to the liberal arts for a minute, um, George Anders is a writer for, writer for Forbes. He has a new book out called You Can Do Anything. It's about the liberal arts and the mm-hmm. power of it in the workplace. Um, and there's a number of employers that you talk to that say, look, we're interested in hiring people mm-hmm. who study the liberal arts mm-hmm. because it makes them empathetic. It makes them uh, sort of creative thinkers. Uh, it, it gives them uh, sort of a cultural awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what about that as a, as a cause? What about that as, I mean, if employers are yeah. asking for this, yeah. what about that? Yeah, of course, liberal arts degrees could signal all those things rather than causing them, which, which is a heart of the book. So, yeah, I mean, someone who has cultural interests, of course, they're more likely to do liberal arts. And then if you want someone like that on the job, then you'll say, wow, we hire these liberal arts majors, and lo and behold, they have these, uh, they have these talents. Uh, but again, to say they must have learned them in the program rather than they were the kind of person that had them to begin with, uh, that you know that that is a significant leap. Uh, the other thing that's worth pointing out is, and if you look at the data, people with liberal arts degrees, who at least to those who finish them, do on average make quite a bit more money than people that don't go to college at all. Yeah. But they are below average. So if employers say we're looking for people like this, well, you may be looking for them at moderate wages. They are not your first picks to pay large salaries to. Those large salaries are generally going to your electrical engineers, your CS people, economists, finance people. Uh, so, you know, it, it is worth keeping in mind that on average their pay is quite a bit lower and they are a lot more likely to end up 
in what we think of as non-college jobs. Again, so people with liberal arts degrees, while on average they wind up doing better, but still the stereotype that you'll wind up working in a bookstore, there is a basis in fact for that. It isn't the normal outcome, but it is a greatly elevated risk. So you know, the idea that the liberal arts are completely worthless is wrong, or that employers will not consider you if you have a liberal arts degree, that's, that's wrong. But on the other hand, the idea that there is a penalty in the labor market relative to having done one, a, a, more, a, a more, more of a STEM major, that's true. I mean, you say, like, when I was a kid, my dad really gave me the idea there's only two jobs in the world, which is electrical engineer, that's what he was, and taxi driver, all right? And, you know, and when, when I was able to go and, and, and have a decent career as an economist, it was kind of confusing to him. He was like, what is this thing? He'd never even heard of it. But, you know, like, you know, he was just wrong, and all kinds of, you know, like, like, like I don't know, there's no major out there that doesn't, on average, improve your job prospects as long as you finish the degree, but... They're not all created equal, and liberal arts majors are below average in terms of how well they do for you uh, in business, which I think actually most liberal arts majors would agree with that. I don't think it's such a controversial point. I think they'd say, yeah, well, I just, you know, either I'm not good at math, I get that a lot, or I hate math, I'm good at it, but I don't like it. I didn't want to suffer for all those years, so I did this thing instead, and yeah, I could have gotten a higher paid job, but this, you know, but by doing liberal arts and then, be, and, and then going and working in journalism, you know, then they may say, but it's more fulfilling to me. So, you know, like, you know, certainly don't disagree with that. Yeah, I think I think my dad was a bit down on me uh, <laughs> being an English major and wanting to work, live, work as a writer. I think he wanted me to, to be a salesman. Um, what, so, what are the what are the solutions to this? I mean, we should talk mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. talk about some of the potential solutions. Um, where do you begin with all this? Right. So, the where the the, the, one, the one, where I begin is with an idea that is so unpopular. I realize it's going to be a very hard sell, but I mean, I feel like if I don't do it, who will? And this is cutting education spending, right? So educational austerity. Austerity is a word that's normally only applied to other people. It says, you horrible austerians. I want to own this word and say, I believe in austerity. I think that if you're spending a lot of taxpayer money on something with very little social payoff, you should stop. And, and so right? that, would, that would shift the burden, more of the burden of the cost of education yes. from mm-hmm. the state to the yes. individual. Yes, yeah, so it shifts it to the individual and to parents, and that, that's all true. Uh, and again, people get very upset about that because they're always thinking about the one talented kid from a poor family who then has a tougher time. And I'm saying, look, you need to think about the broader social effects. Broader social effects of having all this education is that you need this education to be considered employable. Wouldn't it be better to have a world where you could get a good job right out of high school? Wouldn't that be better not, you know, for almost everybody, right? You know, so like, like if, if you really were concerned about having a, an equitable society, like wouldn't it be a better society where you can get a good job right out of high school rather than, rather than saying, well, you finish high school, great. Now here's four more years you have to do, right? And I think that by making education so accessible, we have created a world where you, know, you, you, you would just increase the number of, st- of, of stairs that you have to climb just to get to what is really, should, you know, like is the first big Step of the career, which is you know get, getting getting a job where they actually are going to give you some real training about it. But this austerity that you're talking about, this would apply mm-hmm. just to college, or would it apply so, to K twelve yeah. as well. Um, I, I am open to all kinds of austerity, and in the book, I go over a lot of different ones. Again, so I mean, there's there's simple ones just like raising tuition and reducing the subsidy on student loans, right? So I mean, this book puts me in a very odd place because most people, critics of critics of higher education, especially, say it's terrible that tuition's so high and that student debt is so high. And I say, you know, really, those are the parts of the system that work, right? And the problem is, you know, tuition needs to be higher, and, it, and, and the student loan interest rates need to be higher. You know, like, how does this make it more affordable for the student? It doesn't. I'm trying to do the opposite. So uh, to discourage people from getting a degree that really is just fostering this rat race, 
right? So, and again, I, I so something where, I mean, I, I, I am self-aware. I know this sounds terrible to most people. I know it's a super unpopular view. Uh, I mean, I, I looked, you, know, you said, when I looked internationally, I couldn't find a single country on earth where more than a few, more than, a, than maybe 10% of, of the population believes in cutting education spending. But that's what I say really ought to be done. Again, like, you know, even very modest cuts, I think, I think are worthwhile. But in terms, you know, there's many other ideas. So you can do that. But you also talk about just reducing required requirements, especially. So, like, here's one where, again, I have almost no support, although I would say the case is just almost ironclad, which is, you know, like, almost every high school in America, every high school system, I think maybe every state, uh, state education system in the U.S. has a foreign language requirement to graduate from high school, hmm. right? And I say, look, why? Why is it required that you go and do this? just to get a high school degree, I mean, given two facts. First of all, very few U.S. jobs actually would ever use the foreign language. And second of all, almost no one successfully learns to learn, learns a foreign language in school anyway, right, after two or three years. So here for the book, I did manage to piece together the data. So essentially, under 1% of adult Americans even claim to have learned to speak a foreign language very well in school. Right now, I've, I, I have spent time in foreign languages, but still, I would just say it's just entertainment for, 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 for me and for most people do it. And I think most people don't find it entertaining. Most people find it a big drag. So why is it that every single person has to do it? Now, of course, a lot of people right now do it just to get into college. So like another proposal I have here is, you know, state legislature could simultaneously say all our state schools are getting rid of foreign language requirements. Or you could do like I think Washington has, which is say you could do a computer language instead, right? Which seems like a really good reformist measure. And we're also going to stop requiring in high school. So you synchronize the high school and the college, at least at the state level, in order to try to move people to a better, to a better result. All right, so I talk about a lot of other reforms like that uh, as well. Under this austerity program that you're talking about, if you, if you shift the cost of education from mm-hmm. the state to the individual, mm-hmm. wouldn't, wouldn't that just exacerbate the socioeconomic divisions mm-hmm. between people? I mean, the rich, mm-hmm. you, you would, you'd mm-hmm. have to assume that the, sta- the signal would still exist. The need for the signal mm-hmm. might still exist, but the rich would get uh, plenty of tries mm-hmm. to get that mm-hmm. signal, and the poor might not even mm-hmm. get one. Two things. So employers can't afford to only hire rich kids. There's just too many jobs. So the key result of reducing education is going to be that it changes standards for how much education uh, do you need in order to get a job in the first place. And it's this second part that is so hard for people to buy, but really what else could happen? I mean, if you go back in time decades earlier, it's completely clear that there's a lot of jobs that you need college for today that you didn't need college for in the past. And the story is pretty obvious. When, the, when very few people who are applying for that job did head college, employers could not afford to be so picky. And it made sense to not be so picky because only having a high school degree in those days just didn't say, so, you know, like it was much more common, so it, it just didn't say anything nearly as bad about you. And then, you know, again, ima- now, furthermore, imagine a world where the only reason you go to school is that you're rich, and it doesn't say anything about your talent. This is actually a world where it no longer makes sense to use education at, on this basis of hiring. So, you know, like in the 19th century, Harvard really is just a finishing club for rich kids. And in that environment, employers barely cared about whether you, whether you, whether you had that kind of degree, and you can see that many of the most successful people in the late 19th century had very little formal education. Uh, today, like, how could they possibly even make it? So again, really, like what the system has done is it has created some very visible opportunities, but has also destroyed lots of other opportunities that we don't, we, we, like, like, like we've sort of taken for granted that they're, that they're gone, but they didn't have to go away. Tell me more about your, your push for vocational education and mm-hmm. how, that would, how that would shake out. What, what would be the things you would have people study? How would it, mm-hmm. how would it all work? Uh, right. So you know, 
you know, like out of all the ways that ways of, of just changing what is taught in school, vocational education seems to be the, the most promising. As I said, you know, there's a lot of work just saying that actually students are probably not doing enough vocational education for their own good. And also students who right now hate school so much they're likely to drop out or even end up in jail. Vocational education seems a lot better for them. Uh, you know, in terms of the kinds of things that you, that you, would, that you would have people do. So I remember one, like one of the referees from my book said, oh, should we go and have them learn typewriter repair? Ha ha. It's like, no, we shouldn't have them learn typewriter repair. Uh, so you know, what should you do? Well, uh, step one is take a look at the kinds of jobs that actually exist right now. Right? And that is a, always a good first step. What is happening in the world today? Right? And you're like, well, like, isn't that obvious? Say it, it is clearly not reflected in the education system we have right now, which seems to be based may, at best on the 19th century economy. So, I mean, like we were mentioning earlier, all of the subjects that we expose people to do in the hopes that something sticks. And that would be great if we were exposing them to things that, could, that are likely to work out for them, or at least could plausibly work out. But most of the subjects you study in school are dead ends. Right? So, you teach someone you know, history or po- you know, history. Well, I could become an historian. Poetry, I could become a poet. You, uh, you go and have them be on the sports team. Oh, I could become a professional athlete. Or you go and have them go and study, you know, do psychology. I could become a, a professional psychologist. These are all fields where the number of jobs is very small. So it would be much better to go and give people a tasting menu of plausible, out, of plausible options, right? Ones where we see, right? So we, like right now we have an enormous number of jobs in elder care. So how about we go and expose people to that, see how they, see how they feel about that. Now, of course... If step one is looking at what kinds of jobs currently exist, step two is doing forecasting. Yes, this is hard, right? And forecasts have been wrong. But still, I say it makes, you know, like, like if we know anything about the future, it's that there's not going to be a lot of jobs for novelists in the future, hmm. right? That is just not a plausible forecast for the future. So better to go and make your best guess and train kids for jobs that seem likely than, you know, than to just deliberately ignore all the facts so in the book, you know, there are countries that do have a much bigger role for vocational education, like Switzerland and Germany. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'd say one of the main obvious things about them is their underclass is so much smaller there, because the kind of kid that in the U.S. system would end up dropping out of the school and maybe ending up in jail, in Germany or Switzerland, they say, hey, you're 14, you, don't, you really seem to resent this whole system. Would you like to become an auto worker? Would you like to learn how to do that and come to a factory where every day you learn a practical skill? Right? And there's a lot of people for whom this is very appealing. They don't write books saying a disquisition on the glories of learning to be an auto worker, but the fact that they are not likely to go and publicly defend, defend, defend it or even talk about what their lives are like doesn't so mean there aren't a lot of people out there. There clearly are. I mean, I've, t- I've looked into the vocational systems of Europe mm-hmm. before and mm-hmm. talked with experts on this. And one of the issues with that is that you know, in some ways, these again, this gets back to the the tracking quest, mm-hmm. question and the race question. In some in some ways, these countries are much more racially homogenous than mm-hmm. we are. We're a very diverse mm-hmm. society, mm-hmm. and so what you have to work out is, you know, according to this system where college is sort of seen as this um, this aspirational goal. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you make the decisions between people who get to go and people who don't? And and that's mm-hmm. that's a real rub mm-hmm. for people in mm-hmm. Europe. Right. I mean, of course, the first thing is just to get rid of the stigma. Right? I mean, even if you don't change anything else, just to go and from kindergarten on say, there are two good routes you could try. There's this college route and there's the vocational route. Let's tell you about each of these. And don't just condescend and say, oh, well, vocational, that's good too. But to really mean it and to actually expose people to both. Because, yeah. because right now, yes. I mean, I've done some reporting yes. in Washington where, where uh, Washington State where they're trying to push CTE. They're trying mm-hmm. to push more vocational mm-hmm. opportunities. But you have a lot of 
kids and parents who are mm-hmm. saying, no, that's dirty work. That's not for my kid. Right. I mean, of course, you know, a lot of people are going, are going to be like that. I mean, you know, just worth, worth, you know, worth remembering that there are so many kids for whom the current path does not work out well. And remember, if you're talking about racial disparities, there's racial disparities in high school graduation. Shocking. Racial disparities in college graduation. Shocking. Racial disparities in, what, in whether people do high or low paid majors. You know, right. Also, well, not really. Shocking. So, you know, if you go and propose another system and say there's going to be racial disparities there, say, well, yeah, I mean, like, it would be amazing if there weren't. But still, in terms of figuring out a system that's actually going to be most effective, and again, remembering that it's important to, to consider not only the best case scenario, but the likely scenario. In fact, I would say likely scenarios are more important to consider than best case scenarios. So, you know, like realizing like it is, you know, especially for males who do not like school, their odds of dropping out and ending up in jail are really high. Right. And, you know, like just for them to have any kind of productive employment would be an improvement for not only society, but also for them. So you know, if you could come up with a system that did that, but then say, but there, you know, there, there, there is some, there, there's some disparities, I'd say, well, compared to what? You take a, a pessimistic view of, of students, you know, students mm-hmm. who come to your class, they sleep through the class, they, mm-hmm. they're not really interested, they don't yeah, retain anything, they don't show up anything. at all. Don't show up at don't all. Up at all. Um, I mean, at the college level, is, is this somewhat unsurprising because they've already been through 12 <laughs> years of this sort of drill and kill, mm-hmm. high stakes testing, and they're just... You know, it, it seems pointless. They're sort of worn out by it. Maybe we need what we need to do is just sort of change the orientation of schooling to say, look, these subjects can be interesting. There's no there's no weight to that to this. There's no sort of high stakes associated with this. We just want you to to learn some of these things and discover some of these things and find what interests you. And that could be liberal arts stuff that or that could be more technical things. So I've got four kids, so I've seen a lot of what K through twelve looks like. So it like it looks like as well. And let me say, the board faces don't start in college. The board faces start way earlier than that. Uh, you know, like, like in kindergarten. So, so yeah, let's in, change yeah, it. Yes. Let's yeah. change it. Let's make it more yeah. relevant. So, believe me, so I mean, here's the thing is that you, know, like, again, you could imagine doing, ma- making it radically different, and then it would be fun, although also people wouldn't really consider it school anymore. Because, you know, so, you know, like, you know, like honestly, like my, you know, my view of like especially early grades, like be better to have like three hours of literacy and numeracy a day, and then the rest of the day they can play or go to the library. Right, and so like you know, that, you know, if there were a school like that, that's the kind that I would that I would send my younger kids to. And, you know, like you know, employers don't know that they did this, and you know, like you know, they're not retaining. You know, like the literacy and numeracy is really important. You need it in the future. You've got to learn it, even if you don't like it. But as for why kids have to be suffering so much the rest of the day, being so bored, uh, you know, like I don't see any big justification for it. Or like even even you know, like like, you know, like, so, like why not just try something else? And like like why why do kids have to suffer so much? Um, but you know, in terms of like, why couldn't we change it to make things fun? I mean, this this is actually the ethos, at least of high school, like you know, like really middle school and high school in Northern Virginia, where I come from. And there is a lot of emphasis, like we have to do posters and things like this and group projects. There are some people who enjoy that. There's a bunch of other people who are even more miserable than that than they would be if they could just do their work. Uh, yeah, so you know, like my my older sons, when they were always told, and kids love this, like I don't. I just want to go and write my papers and read the book. And, like, why is it that I can't do this? So, I mean, in terms of coming up with a system like this that is just, like, that is just generally enjoyable, I think it's pretty hard because, you know, like, you know, most people are just not very interested in abstract subjects. It's, you know, again, just look at what even college graduates do in their spare time after graduation. How many sit around going to, you know, go, go to operas or watch educational videos on YouTube versus, you know, like, even, like, PhDs, how many are probably a lot more watching Food Network than are, than, are, than are going and watching philosophy videos. 
right? And, you know, I think this just speaks to something pretty deeply rooted in human nature that some things are interesting to people and some are not. And, like, honestly, I am the kind of very odd person that finds fascinating stuff that other people think is terrible. So, you know, like, German opera, to me, this is fantastic. Most people, they would pay a lot of money just to get the, get out of that opera house. Like, it just sounds like German screaming at me. I can't stay in this. Like, how can you not love this? It's so great. Let me tell you about it. And like, oh, I'm just dying of boredom already. Please just leave me alone. I mean, when I was a kid, I just kept thinking, if I would just explain it to people in the right way, then they'd agree with me. But, you know, eventually I did grow up and say, no, I'm wrong. There's no way to explain it to most people that would make it enjoyable to them. You could maybe... Make uh, you know, find a few people that are on that are fence that are straddling the fence and say there's more to this than meets the eye. Let me let me show you. But most people they're never going to change their minds. But but, but that's, that's sort of the, the the role of the teacher. I mean maybe we've beaten the love of this of these topics out of kids by testing the hell out of them all the time. Maybe we need more teachers who say, you know, this is. I mean we've talked mm-hmm. before about your work uh, as a teacher of economics mm-hmm. and at George Mason. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe it's on the teachers to be more more relevant, more engaging. Take pull back on the mm-hmm. tests, pull back on some of these mm-hmm. kinds of bureaucratic requirements, and just sort of the, let the love of teaching go. Right. So in the book, I have a quote from Steven Pinker, who is you know famous Harvard professor. I think we were talking actually mentioning him earlier. So he is routinely voted one of the best teachers at Harvard by the students, and yet he writes a piece saying you know, half the students aren't in my class. So, like, I'm supposedly one of the best teachers at one of the best universities in the world teaching the best students in the world, and yet they don't seem interested in what I have to say, right? Then, you know, there is a point where the, where the experiment is so extreme, and yet it still doesn't seem like students care about it. I think you do have to say, maybe, like, like, like not maybe, it seems like in this scenario, overwhelmingly, it's likely that it's just the students could not be made to care no matter how hard you tried. Now, when I teach, by the way, I'm always trying to teach the few that do care, like, you know, that's like that's how I stay motivated, and there are and there are there are there are some, but and you know, and like say my my teaching evaluations are are very high. Like the students say, I'm good. I'm just not good enough to get them to get out of bed and come to the class half the time. I mean, there's uh, we've talked about you know how does this sort of hang with people over time, but you know there are there are people you know Freakonomics being mm-hmm. an example that have made economics mm-hmm. very sexy. You know. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, planet money, making yeah. economics kind of sexy. So, I mean, at some point, people mm-hmm. are introduced to these topics, and then they, they find something that hooks in for them, and then they, they follow it. Yeah, so, I mean, there is something called edutainment out there. And, you know, you know so, you know, like the Freakonomics guys, you know, Levin and Dubner, you know, they, they, they've, they've done great with it. Ken but, Burns, yes, 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 yes. Although, oh, so, I mean, in terms of, ju- you know, so, of course, their audiences are still small compared to your real pop culture stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... In terms, of, you know, like, but if you're thinking that, like, how much do people actually learn? Like, out of people who read Freakonomics, how many, like, could go and you know even explain what they read years later, or or or, or how about you just go and give them a new economics problem that could be solved with Freakonomics style reasoning and see how good they are at it? Um, you know, in general, it seems like you know, like there there is the enjoyment of the process, and then it's pretty disposable. Uh, so, you know, like. An example that really stuck with me. So I have two friends, uh, Tyler Cowan and Alex Tabrock. So they have an online university, Marshall Revolution, Marshall, Revolution, Marshall Revolution University. And my memory is that when they first put up their intro economics class, 10,000 people signed up. Right? So all this interest. And then they offered a midterm. And the number I remember is you know, like, you know, four people actually took the midterm. Right? And, the, and what were the other people doing? Well, they, you know, they seemed to enjoy listening. But they didn't want to actually double check whether they had understood anything or that they had actually acquired the ability to, 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 to apply it. That's okay, though, right? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, like, like it depends on what you're trying to do. If all, if the only thing is you want them to have an enjoyable process, great. But if you want them to learn it, then I would say, like, you know, like, like you know, it is unlikely they learn it very well if they're never tested. Especially if you're never getting feedback, are you learning it well or not? Again, this is another one of the big lessons of educational psychology, which is that testing is very important, even if they're, even if it's low stakes testing. Just to bluntly tell someone you th- you think you understand this right, almost everybody does think they understand things. Well, actually, you don't. And we need to go back and we need to actually learn it. So, I mean, that's one of the good things about testing is just giving people some candid feedback so they know, well, like, have I actually followed it or not? And then maybe I need to go back and try again because you know, there's the illusion of learning, but then there's learning itself, which is a very different thing. I, th- I think people are very much attached to the idea of a public support for education because mm-hmm. they think we're going to turn into idiocracy if we mm-hmm. don't uh, if, <laughs> if we don't support this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I did notice your your debate at AEI with Eric mm-hmm. Hanushek, mm-hmm. and uh, you did win that debate, mm-hmm. but you won the debate because you had swayed more people to your side. I mean, I mm-hmm. think in the end, mm-hmm. in the room, he still had the majority yeah, of people of buying yeah. his his argument. Yes. So this is a tough argument yes. for you to yeah. to make. Yeah, I mean, so let me say, like, I don't write a book for anything, well, you know, defending any view that's popular. Right, because I figure popular views don't need my help. They're doing fine. There's always going to be plenty of people. I always like to find the orphan ideas, the ideas that no one else loves. They're sitting there, and I say, you know what? You could be a great idea, and I'm going to nurture you and raise you, and I'm going to make you strong. And this is what I do and do in all of my books. You know, like I mean, like you know, I mean, honestly, this is what appeals to me on on, on a personal level. Is there's you know, like if when I hear everyone, if I've been hearing my whole life people saying something, it just seems wrong to me. Uh, that's what motivates me to go and write something, right? And also, of course, to say, like, it seems wrong, but I'm, maybe I'm wrong. So, you know, like, I mean, I, I do very research-intensive books where I just try to go and you know, read you know, enormous amounts of material, uh, you know, not just, like, stuff that is going to agree with me. It's like, what has anyone said about this, and how can I make sense of it? Hmm. We only have about a, a minute left or, or so, but you have kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, your kids are going off to are at school mm-hmm. now. They'll mm-hmm. go off to college eventually one day. How are you going to handle that? What are you going to tell them? Uh, well, so, you know, a couple of things. So one is, of course, the basic skills, very important, and you've got to learn those. And, you know, and don't take the title of my book as a reason not to go and learn re- re- reading and math. You've got to learn those things. Uh, but then say, look, there's also this big element of signaling. You've got to game the system. Uh, you know, you want to go and game the system so that your life is not miserable during these years. And, uh, but at the same time, you've got to realize that there's no way to get around a lot of this stuff in our current society, but that doesn't mean that what your teachers are telling you is true. It doesn't mean that you're going to use trigonometry after graduation, but you probably do have to go and do well in trigonometry right now if you want to get the future that you're looking for. Sorry. Well, thanks, Brian. Thanks so much for talking. Thanks so much. This has been great. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcast at c-span.org.